Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Over the course of the 1930s, Wu Chong Fung published eight novels, a number of which are now classics of modern Vietnamese literature, in addition to hundreds of works of narrative nonfiction, stories, plays, essays, and articles. He was a best-selling author in his own day, and yet he had sharpened his acute literary talents, Peter Sinnemann writes, as a lower-class, untraveled, half-educated, opium-addicted, colonized subject from a remote outpost of France's second-rate empire. He died in 1939 at just 28 years of age. His views on a range of topics drew controversy in his own lifetime, and his work was criticized as pornographic and obscene. For a period of time after he died, it was denounced and banned by the ruling Communist Party. To tell us more about these and other aspects of his fascinating short life and oeuvre is Peter Zinnemann, Professor of History and Southeast Asian Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of Vietnamese Colonial Republican, The Political Vision of Vu Chong Fung, published in 2014 by the University of California Press. He's talking with me, Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University and host of the channel. Peter, thank you very much for joining Joining us. Thank you for having me. You write at the start of the book that your protagonist needs no introduction to Vietnamese readers, but why do non-Vietnamese need to be introduced to him and more particularly to his political vision? That's a great question to open with, Nick. In the course of learning about Vu Chom Phom very early on, I came to develop an incredible admiration for this figure. Um, I think that he is a writer of extraordinary talent in world comparative terms, world historical terms. And this talent can be seen, I think, in a number of things. His incredible productivity, as you mentioned, his early premature tragic death, the remarkable acclaim of his work. Before I started working on him, I knew I wanted to work on a literature and a writer. And so I got into the project by essentially asking older Vietnamese intellectuals, professors, writers, etc., 
who's the greatest modern writer? And it was striking the unanimity of the response. Vu Chomfum, his he was you know always in the top two, but almost always number one. And I uh, write about it in the book, and I assume we'll talk about uh, the kind of complexity and diversity of his work. He was someone who was a great novelist, probably Vietnam's greatest 20th century novelist, but also a great author of nonfiction, very much in the style of Orwell, a great novelist, a great writer of reportage. Fu Chongfeng is the same way. One could argue that nonfiction reportage, of which he wrote four book-length works, are as great as his novelists. Those certainly haven't been surpassed. He's still, I think, the greatest reportage writer. Finally, I would say his modernity, the fact that even though he wrote this now, you know, 80 years ago, it strikes me, and I think it strikes a lot of readers, as very contemporary. It's not dated at all. He has a very sarcastic voice, and his great novel, Dumb Luck, is this kind of laugh-out-loud, screamingly funny sex farce. So, I mean, I think this modernity as a historian was something that really interested me, putting that together with all of these other qualities. I developed somewhat of a missionary relationship towards him. One purpose of the project or the kind of series of projects I've done around him is just to promote him, to you know have him known, integrated into curriculum. I think that to the extent that I've had any success with that, it comes from this novel, Dumb Luck, that I translated together with my wife, published, I think, in 2002, so quite, quite a while before this book came out. But that translation is accompanied by a long introduction that you know make, makes various arguments about him. That, that book has gone into seven, eight, nine printings. It, it has been adopted in a lot of classes. It's made some, some kind of an impact. In the introduction, you say that the richness and complexity of political commitment in late colonial Indochina have been underrated in existing scholarship on the period. Mm. So how do you think your attention to the political vision of Fung assists us in overcoming the binary accounts of that period? So that's also a great question. And it relates to my second objective in writing the book. Uh, as I said, the first one was just promotion and celebration of this guy. The second objective in that, you know, has more to do with my status as a historian of Southeast Asia, historian of Vietnam, is to try to make sense of his politics. And what I understand of his politics, it doesn't seem to fit into the normal categories that dominate the historiography on 20th century Vietnamese political history. That historiography basically says there's sort of hard left nationalist movement, agenda, impulse. It's, it's Ho Chi Minh's communists leading a nationalist movement on the one hand. Um, and then on the other, there's various kinds of right-leaning opponents. Uh, so those are the typical poles of Vietnamese political history. They sort of map onto the post-colonial civil war and, and the two sides in the Civil War, the communist North, led by Ho Chi Minh, and the anti-communist South, led by Ngo Dinh Diem for the first decade, and then a, a succession of generals thereafter. And the colonial period is written about as if you know those two positions were the dominant positions then. But what my study of Vu Chong Fum, who 
I think it's significant that he's such a great, he's such an influential writer, such a widely read writer. It means that his political project was absorbed by a lot of people. A lot of people read his work. And even though he's not writing manifestos, in some of the work, especially the journalism, it's very clear what he's supporting. So his voice is not just one voice out there. It's got some interesting influence. There's a lot of actually prominent intellectuals who share his, his politics. So he's not by himself. He is part of this previously uncharacterized, unclassified, unnamed political orientation in the colonial period. So the second part of the project, the second objective is to name this orientation. I call it Vietnamese colonial republicanism and to to describe its content, talk about its origins and to counterpose it, I guess, to those other two more common political positions. And I think this republicanism basically comes from a French tradition that dates from the French Revolution, develops during the 19th century. Its biggest enemies are the monarchy and the church. And so, you know, the things that it supports are things that are naturally in opposition to that uh, democracy, science, and civil society development is, you know, a valorization of freedom in various spheres. I think compared to those other two positions, it's a much more virtuous one, a much more admirable one. In you know, in conditions of civil war, these kind of middle of the road positions are often overwhelmed. I think that's what's that's what happened to this strain, this political strain, this Vietnamese republicanism. But si- signs of it, traces of it survive even during the dark period of the civil war and communization uh, after 1954 and then after 1975, and, and then with the reforms of the 80s and this kind of great renewed interest in Vu Chom Phum, that I think that that's a sign of renewed interest in some of the values of this Republican tradition that you know dates from the colonial period um, and that has been a presence on the scene, sadly never a victorious presence. In setting out the category just then, you concentrated on its Republican contents. So what is the term colonial doing? I think that, you know, Republicanism, uh, I mean, it's a very big tent worldview and um, it gets it gets taken up in a lot of different places, including the United States and Haiti, and and it has different valences in the different places it's taken up. Even in France, if you you know look at who the famous Republicans are, this it's actually a spectrum of people, sort of from the right to the left. I think the colonial adjective is probably less important than the Vietnamese. You know, basically, I say that there's certain local political concerns that are separate from the Republican tradition, but they overlap. And that causes them to, I think, loom maybe larger in this version of republicanism than in others. And certain things that are missing in this version that are present in others, just to give you an example, republicanism in France has a very strong anti-clerical dimension and breaking the power of the church is a big part of its agenda. The Third Republic eventually successfully establishes separation of church and state and education in 1905. Vietnamese religion is very different than religion in Europe or religion in France. It's actually it's one of the it's something that I think is often misunderstood about it. It's very uninstitutionalized. There's no church really. It's got Chinese style 
religion. It's a combination of Buddhism, Taoism, animism, ancestor worship, etc. There's no high, real, real hierarchical institution that oversees it. Religion is not an oppressive force, I think, hasn't historically really been an oppressive force in Vietnam. And so anti-religious stuff is not such a big deal in this version of republicanism. On the other hand, Vietnamese have a king, just like the French had one. And the king is seen as despotic, authoritarian, non-democratic. Um, and in the colonial situation, he's also a puppet and a kind of a buffoon. So there, there's an area where there's, there's significant overlap. The French Republican emphasis on education dovetails with values of education that come out of the Confucian tradition that's really important in Vietnam. So these Republicans like Fu Chongfeng, he's kind of preoccupied with education as a critical reformist instrument. I, I make the point in the book that Republicans like Fu Chongfeng are non-revolutionary. They're opposed to radical change. Rather, they support gradual reform. Education is often the first solution that they look to. Before we talk more about Fong's political vision, I think we need a sense of the person. Can you tell us a bit more about the life that he was born into, how he lived that life and how he died? He's born in 1912, and he's born into very modest circumstances. His parents are from the countryside. It's actually, at this point, kind of a suburb of the capital city of Hanoi, and they move into Hanoi right after he's born, and his father dies soon thereafter, I think about seven months thereafter, and his mother is left to raise him and eventually support her parents by herself. She finds work as a seamstress, and Fum grows up in the heart of urban Hanoi, the sort of old quarter, great part of town, actually, um, living in like a, a small apartment in a, in a really densely populated part of the city. He um, benefits from free public schooling that's just been introduced by, interestingly, a Republican French governor general, Albert Soro. And this teaches him French and introduces him to French colonial civic culture. But because of poverty um, of his mother, he drops out of school in his early teens, about when he's about 13 or 14, and he starts to work in various low-level white-collar jobs. He gets a job at the biggest department store in Hanoi. Initially, he's a guard for their bicycle shed, but he eventually works his way up through various kind of janitorial positions. Eventually, he becomes a clerk. He moves on from that job to work at a publishing house. And then he begins to work at newspapers in his late teens. Um, and this is a time, this now is end of the 1920s, beginning of the 1930s, uh, where there's a kind of explosion in the Vietnamese language press, the number of newspapers and magazines and journals grows exponentially at this period. It's connected to the educational reforms and new uh, levels of literacy and other factors as well. This provides a sort of an employment opportunity for s someone like, like Fum. And we have the birth now of this sort of new character in colonial society and Vietnamese society, you know, the professional journalist, someone who makes their living by writing for money. From 1930 to 1939, he basically is a journalist, a newspaper man. Um, and all of these uh, novels that he writes are serialized in newspapers. Every single one is published in installments. Of course, it's a good way to make an income uh, if you have a 30-chapter novel, as some of these are. So uh, he you know, just jumps from newspaper to newspaper, uh, and his celebrity grows, but he gets 
tuberculosis and gets weak. He ends up thinking that smoking opium might be therapeutic and he becomes addicted to opium. And so the combination of opium addiction and tuberculosis brings him to a very abrupt, quick and abrupt end. He was a, a huge funeral. Thousands of people come out. There's commemorations written, delivered to him, very important sources for my study, um, as you can imagine. Um, all of this, this kind of outpouring of writing about him upon his death in 1939. Did he ever um, marry, have a family? He does get married, but very late. He marries in 1938, so just the year before he dies, and his wife gets pregnant. And just like him, his daughter is born and he dies within a year of her birth. She then survives, actually. She, she probably died about 20 years ago. There's, there's not very much about his marriage. We don't really know much about his, his, uh, his sort of intimate side um, of his life. He never left a diary or anything like that. So let's turn to the corpus of his work. Mm -hmm. The height of his productivity you identify as 1936 and 37. What did he write mm -hmm. in that time and what genres is he identified with? There's two periods of his productivity. The first from 1930 to 36, when his work as a journalist is preeminent and he writes most of his important uh, works of reportage. Then 36, after 36, is sort of the period of his novels. I'll just say a couple things about the reportage. There's four big ones, and they're on the following topics. The first one is about con men and gamblers who ply their trade on the streets of Hanoi during that era. Chomfom follows them around, gets to know them, and describes this kind of subterranean world. A great piece that's still never been translated, full of this unbelievable slang from the period um, that these guys on the street used. His second piece of reportage is called Household Servants, um, and that's just what you think it's about. He disguises himself as a household servant, works in the homes of Vietnamese bourgeois families and French families, spends a lot of time with household servants, interviews them, provides this really amazing ethnography of servants, masters, and that whole culture in, this is 1933, 34. Again, you can imagine why he's still of such interest today, you know, with the reforms, all middle-class Vietnamese, all urban Vietnamese have servants. It happened overnight. Um, and so this book is, you know, sort of what the servants think of us, what the servants think of their owners is sort of the main theme. His third piece of reportage is called The Industry of Marrying Westerners, that's about mixed-race marriage between French men and Vietnamese women. It's a very funny story of kind of cross-cultural relations and misunderstanding. His fourth is called Venereal Disease Clinic, and that is a study of prostitution and a hospital for treating infected prostitutes in Hanoi. The novels, which, um, as I said, are written, these four novels written in an 18-month period, all serialized. A couple of the novels are serialized simultaneously, and we have uh, memoir accounts in the period that show him actually composing chapters of alternating novels in these public cafes where he worked and sort of asking people to help him keep track of you know what was happening in the plot in each one. These novels are really, really different from each other, and they're extremely interesting and intricate. They're quite long. I'm afraid if I described them all in great detail, um, I would go on for way too long. But do you want me to give a 
quick account of them. You may select one or two that you think are especially interesting and illustrative. <laughs> having said that to you, I realize I just, what a foolish response it is. Right, I think <laughs> having to choose which of my children I like best. I'll just give a couple lines about each one, about genre, etc. So the f- first one is called The Storm, and it is a political melodrama uh, in which a communist superhero, a communist super agent, does battle with an evil capitalist and defeats him. It's a, it's a big kind of sprawling political novel. The second novel, Dumb Luck, that I translated is this, as I said, sex farce, basically about the craze for modernization and westernization amongst the Vietnamese urban middle classes in Hanoi in 1936. The third novel is called The Dyke Breaks, um, and that is, I think you could say it's the first Vietnamese example of socialist realism. It's about you know a couple of brothers who get politicized through labor struggles and protest struggles against government abuse and economic inequality, etc. And it's a very left-leaning kind of novel. To the extent that people have interpreted Vu Chong Phong as a leftist, a lot of it is because of that novel, The Dyke Breaks. But then his fourth novel, which is called To Be a Prostitute or To Be a Whore, Lam Di, is a sort of U-turn um, if you're thinking that he has the sort of leftist trajectory of his work because uh, this novel, To Be a Whore, is considered Vietnam's first Freudian novel. And indeed, in, in, in the introduction, Vu Chong Phong references Freud. It's, so this is not a stretch. He's reading Freud or reading about Freud at the time. And it's a novel of, uh, in which a young man goes to a brothel, recognizes uh, the prostitute who has been assigned to him as a rich girl he knew in high school. And then he asks her, you know, how did you get to the state? And the novel is her first person confession, almost like she's on the couch and you're the therapist, describing how she went from being a good girl uh, to being a prostitute. And all of the explanation is clearly influenced by Freudian uh, ideas of repression, etc. So these four novels, they're really different from each other. They're different genres. They're thematically um, quite different. Two of them, Dumb Luck and The Storm, are, as I mentioned, you know, they're if you ask people, if you ask, you know, literature professors, et cetera, you know, what are the great Vietnamese novels, the, the great 20th century Vietnamese novels, those two are almost always in the top five. So it sounds like a number of the works tackle questions of the day, capitalism and communism in complex and fascinating ways, and that these go to the questions of his political vision with which you're interested. But mm. how does the Freudianism come into play in this story? You devote an entire chapter to the question of sexuality in mm. his work, and it's certainly a part of his work that seems to have raised a lot of the controversy around it, both during his lifetime and afterwards. Why was it that that became so integral to his work and what do you make of it as part of his political vision? It's a very good question. And honestly, I think that that relationship of that theme, which as you say correctly, is a huge theme in his work, the controversy over the pornographic content of his work really kind of dominates his public persona during his life. After his death, it's more about his politics, but during his life, it's really about pornography. I make a case that there's some connection between that and his Republican vision, 
But I don't think that's the whole story. I think that he's not just a political writer. He's not just someone with a political project that he then tries to deliver in his writing. He's a, he's a writer first, and he's got many different concerns and preoccupations. And one of them is the, the change, I guess, in a Vietnamese sexual culture brought by colonialism. This is where the fact that you know, I was colonized by France, which is you know much more... I guess, open, libertine, less repressed, say, than the British or the Americans or the Dutch as colonialists. And so the Vietnamese are exposed to, you know, all kinds of French sentimental romances and French pornography. And then the entry of capitalism brings with it advertising, which, you know, advertising is using sex to sell things. The growth of prostitution is, you know, a, a byproduct of the growth of capitalism just the general development of the colony under conditions of French colonialism. So that's an obvious negative phenomenon from Trumpfum, the growth of venereal disease, which is closely related to the growth of prostitution. That's a huge negative from Trumpfum. Um, and the other, these, those other uh, cultural changes having to do with sexuality, in general, he he doesn't like any of those, including things that we might see as more positive, like female emancipation, the Modern woman is an important kind of global figure of of his era of 1920s and 30s. And Vietnam has its incarnation of the modern woman. He's not a fan, and a lot of his satire is about the modern woman and, and attitudes towards the modern woman. Back to your question about how could you link this interest in sexuality with his broader political vision. One focus of this, as I mentioned in regard to the Freudian novel, is a sort of scientific study of sexuality. His approach to sexuality is not just moral. He uses Freud. He uses you know, various kinds of other sexologists. He, he actually is reading Magnus Hirschfeld and guys, uh, Pierre Vacher, considered the French Freud. So to the extent that republicanism has this very strong empiricist streak that it sees, you know, the crafting of social policy based on research as being central to its mission. A lot of his writing about sexuality and certainly his writing about prostitution and venereal disease is very much in that kind of realm. And another part of the Republican agenda is a kind of suspicion of unfettered capitalism. And so the link between capitalism and perverse sexuality or hypersexuality, I think also it, that, that, that's also a connection where this writing about sexuality and his republicanism, I think, might, might be seen. Peter, let's pause for a moment for a message from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll turn to Wu Chongfeng's legacy and discuss further your interpretations of his corpus and experience in writing the book. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. 
Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Peter Zinnemann about a Vietnamese colonial republican. Peter, the last two chapters of the book, Chapter 5 and the conclusion, concern the critical reception and banning of Wu Chong Fung's work and his subsequent rehabilitation in Vietnam. What was the critical reception of his work in the decade after his death in 1939, and when was his work banned and why? During his life, there was a tremendous critical literature about him, and some of it was negative, and he was involved in some back and forth, you know, what were called pen fights at the time. But in general, it was laudatory. He was recognized as this precocious, genius figure, beloved, commercially successful, politically interesting. His death, I think, further raises the halo over him. A lot of the eulogies are about, you know, our the loss of our great literary genius. And, and he continues to be, you know, the sort of beloved figure for, the, I'd say, the decade after he dies. But the, you also have to remember that this decade, 1939 to maybe roughly 1950, 1949, is a period where Vietnamese are consumed by war, essentially, the Japanese occupation, and then Ho Chi Minh's war against the French, and then the sort of civil war that breaks out around that. And so, you know, Vuitton Film is, is republished and is read, but I mean, people are preoccupied with other things at the time. But when the communists come to power in the north of the country in 1954, they are kind of faced with various elements of state building. And one is to establish a canon, a literary canon, a canon of writers to be used in school, acceptable writers. And they're faced with this puzzle of what to do with Fu Chum Fum. Because of his popularity, they would love to associate themselves um, with him. And as I've mentioned, there's some interesting leftist currents in his work. But at the same time, there's this pornographic element of some of his work, which the communists, puritanical for a strange reason, are very uncomfortable with. But also, and this I haven't mentioned yet, in Vuchon Fum's journalism in the late 1930s, he writes some very strident pieces of anti-communist reportage, uh, including a long piece, like a three-part article about the Moscow show trials that uh, are fiercely critical of Stalin, actually, and Lenin, and, and also Trotsky. These are just one of a bunch of anti-communist things that he writes. So you know, Ho Chi Minh's government is sort of, conf- they're confounded by him. What are they going to do with him? They're not really sure. And they are moving towards introducing him into the canon while suppressing his anti-communist work and maybe sort of just characterizing him in a very one-dimensional way. And at that moment, this famous anti-Stalinist domestic political movement in North Vietnam, the Nhân Văn Zai Phum movement, looms up in 1956. This is right at the same time as de-Stalinization in the Soviet Union, the uprisings in Poland and Hungary. This Vietnamese movement is influenced by those. Um, and that movement pushes for all kinds of de-Stalinized reforms. But it also, for some mysterious reasons, promotes Vu Chong Phum as a kind of hero, they republish his work, put him on the cover of their magazines. And when that movement is repressed, and it's quite a brutal repression of that movement that occurs by about 1960, Vu Chong reputation is then blackened by sort of guilt by association, even though he's been dead 
now for 15 years. And so the, uh, a member of the Politburo, a guy named Juan Van Juan, one of the 11 most powerful guys in the country, writes a 20-page report. It's called Thoughts on the Problem of Fuchong Fum in Vietnamese Literature. And the conclusion of that report is Fuchong Fum is a dangerous, counter-revolutionary, decadent, bourgeois, you know, a reactionary, essentially. And Fuchong Fum's work is then pulled from the shelves in North Vietnam. He's basically airbrushed out of the literary history. When the communists win the Civil War, they purge him from the bookshelves in the southern part of the country. Uh, this is in 75, uh, up till the reforms um, of the mid-80s. And so in, in North Vietnam, he's not really accessible from 54 to 1986. It's about a, uh, almost a 30-year period where he's um, essentially banned. And what changed? So in 1986, the government introduces perestroika-style reforms, and there's a loosening of the intellectual sphere as a byproduct. And one of the first things these now unleashed intellectual activists, mainly professors, editors, some writers do, is they move to rehabilitate him. The move to rehabilitate him takes place in the North. It's really about Hanoi, these Hanoi guys who do it. Um, and, you know, I meet these guys in the course of my research. Some of them are great, great scholars of Vu Chong Fum. One in particular, the guy who edits his complete works, which is, you know, five volumes and a thousand pages. And I work very closely with him. I actually do some joint projects with him, some joint publishing with him. The sort of the last, the very, very last part of my book, the epilogue, is sort of a a little bit about these guys because not only do they play a critical role in uh, rehabilitating Bujo uh, Fum, but I suggest that they are attracted to him because they share um, some of these Republican style values. These guys are all, are, are all quite clearly sort of civil society activists, opponents of tyranny, opponents of despotism, great patrons of education and very involved in educational reform. How widely read is he today? And which among prominent contemporary writers might associate themselves with his realist style of writing? It's hard to say, you know, how widely read he is, but he's a writer who, if you go into any any good bookstore, there will be a section on him. He has been integrated into the high school curriculum, which is a national curriculum. So there are excerpts from his novels, but they're very tightly curated excerpts, which everyone reads. So not none of his novels are assigned in their entirety, but like a bunch of chapters from Dumb Luck. Um, are assigned. Um, and then in university, again, same, they're assigned that way. The rehabilitation of him was also accompanied by not just the republication um, of his works as text, but films were made of many of his works. There's a bunch of feature films made from his novels in the late 80s and early 90s. Plays are staged based on his work. So people are, you know, kind of broadly familiar with his work through these forms as well. And, you know, a lot of his characters or his language is integrated into the ordinary speech of people. So like, you know, the main character of Dumb Luck is a country bumpkin called Red-Haired Swan. If you go on the street and there's some, you know, guy from the countryside who's trying to hustle you in a very aggressive way. People will say, oh, there's a red-haired swan. A lot of his 
characters have that kind of function. And, you know, because I wrote this book about him and translated that novel, people come up and talk, want to talk to me about him all the time in Vietnam. And I'm always impressed that people of a certain generation, they, and everyone knows Dumb Luck. Of course, these are you know, city people, but I think he's he's very widely known. And still, he's he's fun to read. So even if you're not assigned, it's the kind of thing you might pick up from your parents' bookshelf and not be able to put down. In terms of your second question, Nick, about are there current writers today who follow in his footsteps? I don't think so. There is a great post perestroika movement of Vietnamese fiction. You know, you might be familiar with some of these people, Zung Tu Hung, Nguyen Hi Thiep, Pham Thi Hoai. They've been translated into English very extensively in French, and they're really interesting, politically daring writers. But they're not like Vu Trong Phong. I mean, they, they don't have the, the range, the productivity, the, the humor, and the sort of level of universal acclaim that, that he does. I really think he's a quite extraordinary kind of figure on the broader literary historical landscape. And back on his political vision, is there any evidence of a residual late colonial republican tradition in the ideology or agenda of government in Vietnam today? Alas, I would say not the government so much, but to the extent that there's a civil society there, and there is a kind of budding civil society, an NGO society, a society of activists and students. And, and actually, I, there are many reformers there. They work in think tanks or research institutions. They work in universities. They work for publishing houses, people who are pushing for, you know, the but for the liberalization of the regime, some of them are human rights activists, the end of censorship, um, freedom of expression, the rule of law. These are all things that Vu Trong Phong um, and his Republican-oriented peers were also pushing for um, at that time. So, yeah, I think those ideas do live on. Vietnamese colonial Republican has drawn a high praise, and, and that's really an understatement, from reviewers for its meticulous use of source materials. You've referred to Orwell a number of times, and of course scholars of that author have thousands of letters and copious other unpublished writings to draw upon in addition to the mm. vast quantity of work that he did put into print. We know that Fung was extremely prolific in his short life, but how does he compare to Orwell in terms of what he left behind that was not published. You mentioned that he didn't leave a diary. On the other hand, it seems that you had access to a lot of counterparts in Vietnam who know his work intimately and with whom you were able to work to gather up a lot of material that was not previously available or known to researchers writing in English. Just briefly, it's a very uneven body of source material. There's, you know, all this published work, but the published work is it's interesting because it comes out first in the newspapers, then it's published as books, usually during his life, at least the report, the big reportage in the novels. And then it gets republished again under these different political regimes, the Saigon regime, the Hanoi regime, the post-reform regime. And all of these regimes have their own policies on censorship, boulderization, etc. And this is a very interesting subject in itself. One of these scholars that I mentioned is human scholars has done really fascinating work comparing different versions of, of the work and showing how what different regimes found dangerous um, in, in his work. But, you know, my principle was for most of the study was to find the earliest versions that I could. And so I 
spent a lot of time in old newspaper collections. And this also led me to many other odd pieces that he wrote as a journalist. I probably discovered, I'd say, maybe 40 pieces, short stories, editorials, plays, a couple of unfinished pieces of reportage, interviews. There's just a really interesting mix of stuff, including some poetry. And uh, together with some of these Vietnamese scholars, or one in particular, a guy named Lai Nguyen An, I, I put that together and published that in Vietnam. And that has you know, added his collected works. But I don't have very much by you know, in the way of letters, uh, a diary. There's a couple of things, but not very much. But uh, as I alluded to, there are many interesting accounts of him. And, you know, I, I think his, his early death means that, you know, everyone kind of writes about him and they tell all these stories about him. And so those were very useful sources. 1941, so two years after he dies, one of his best friends writes a short, very weird, interesting 100-page-long biography that had all kinds of interesting little details. Of course, I would, you know, I would always want more. I wish there was more. But I felt like there was enough to address this particular political issue that I had identified. As the interpretive work that you're doing is fascinating to me, and you're deliberate in saying that you try to forestall the dangers of interpretive overreach by focusing on the most clearly expressed concerns and commitments in mm. his most important works. Mm. And then you raise the question of the relationship between the correspondence between textual content and authorial intent. How do you disentangle or how do you situate your own interpretations against his? When I was in grad school, I was I got interested in the Literature. I think probably because my advisors, Keith Taylor and Ben Anderson, were very interested in literature. So I read quite a bit of literary theory. Uh, and actually, earlier at the beginning of my career, I did some other translations, wrote about some of these more recent writers. And so I became aware that people who study literature professionally, people who really know what they're doing, unlike me, have very sophisticated ideas about whether or not you can assert correspondence between the text and the author's ideas? Maybe not. Maybe the text is some kind of artifice. There, there's one-to-one correspondence is extremely dangerous. I'm aware, uh, to, to assume that is dangerous. So what you cited is me saying, I'm aware of that, but I'm going to do it anyway, pretty much. I have, I think, quite pragmatic, one might say primitive historian's approach to these Sources, you know, trying to distill this guy's political vision from his journalism and his fiction. His from his journalism is one thing, but the fiction, I think, is a trickier proposition. Of course, literature scholars are interested in the politics of literature. They will look at things like form and how formal properties carry political content. Um, so, I also say I talk a little bit about that in the introduction and in the body of the book. I try to remark a little bit, to put a little bit of pressure on his form and draw some conclusions about what the, you know, the content of the form, which strikes me as the job of anyone who's studying literature. You got to pay some attention to that. But I, you know, I must admit, I, I vacillate back and forth from a slightly more sophisticated view of this issue to just mining this stuff for data in a way that's a little bit crude. The book's been out for a few years now. What have you been working mm -hmm. on since? And what can we look forward to from you next? I mentioned that he's 
banned in 1956 because, uh, or beginning in 1956 because of the uh, emergence of this movement, this anti-Stalinization movement. And that movement is the subject of my current research. I've done uh, some archival work uh, in Hanoi and uh, got a bunch of archival material about the movement. This movement produced a, a bunch of Samistat journals and actually published journals and newspapers all in 1956, and so I've gotten my hands on those. There's a kind of interesting Vietnamese language scholarship about the movement, and it's actually some in French and English as well. It's really a study of the sort of dom domestic political dissent in North Vietnam. The most famous episode of domestic political dissent runs from 1956 to 1960. I, I think I've, I've done most of the research for it. I you know, hope to could get serious about the writing in the next couple of years. Peter Zinnemann, thank you very much for coming on to this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss the Vietnamese colonial republic. Thank you, Nick. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks, as always, to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you may also be interested in Ken McLean on the government of mistrust, illegibility and bureaucratic power in socialist Vietnam, or perhaps Eric Jennings on Imperial Heights, Dalat and the Making and Undoing of French Indochina. You can download or stream both of those interviews and thousands of others free of charge via the New Books Network website or on iTunes. Monkey! Hey, thank God, sweet, get the tin to vote. Monkey! Hey, thank God, sweet, get the tin to vote. Monkey!